0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio. From creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences, to audio secrets, here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. I'm Vince Diamante, and I'm just talking not so live. I'm, I'm talking at you from my place here in Southern California. As you may know from the previous episode, Mike was not in Southern California at that time, but he comes back to us today. How are you doing, Mike? I am considerably
1: warmer than I was a week ago when I was uh, enjoying a little bit of weather nostalgia in New York City, uh, experiencing a snowstorm for the first time in many years. and uh, As fun as that was, I'm, I'm glad to be back in the nigh-perpetual sunshine of Los Angeles vicinity.
0: 72 and sun is, uh, yeah, (laughs) it is hard to beat that. Uh, It it is pretty great. It's going to be like this for a while. Although, man, it's been a long time since I've been in New York. You typically make that trip, what, uh, four or five times a year, it seems? Not quite that often, but usually
1: when there isn't a uh, global pandemic, I will usually go twice Uh, a year, and uh, sometimes I'll springboard off of New York to go to London and other places. Because uh, it breaks up what would otherwise be a really, really long flight into two moderately long flights.
0: I actually really miss going to the UK. Um, one of my favorite things would be going to Edinburgh, actually. Uh, and it's been a long time since I've been there, hang out with friends. Typically, Fringe Festival is around that time, too. Man, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, come this August. I cannot wait. Come to the Fringe this August for you yeah. hang out. Hey, yeah, it's that could be cool. I am looking forward to some more travel this year. I've actually already started booking some trips. Uh, in fact, later this month, I'm going to be at GDC. I'm doing a little bit of a talk there, as well as a little bit of networking. So there is that. Are you going to be over there at GDC? This year, I decided to opt out. And I think what
1: I'm going to do as a vicarious substitute is subscribe to the vault and just watch a lot of the talks uh, after the fact once they're. Uh, available through streaming. But uh, mm-hmm. what's what's your talk? Perhaps you can share that with our audience in case they want to catch you live.
0: Yeah, so I'm doing actually just a micro talk. Uh, I'm going to be hanging out with a couple other people. Yeah, just doing a little bit of a micro postmortem on the soundtrack that I did for Sky Children of the Light. The high level is, even though it's the soundtrack for a single game, there's really two different experiences that I'm scoring. And actually, the workflow for making the soundtrack for those two disparate experiences is actually really strikingly different. So that's kind of what I talk about uh, at GDC. Hey, um, this is the planning that goes into making this big, uh, you know, well-linked, chapter-by-chapter story experience versus here is hitting all the marks when it comes to what players are expecting when they're... Doing these different multiplayer experiences. Here's the technical aspects that you have to consider for multiplayer. Um, uh, when do you rectify multiplayer music state when you're joining together different instances? There's a lot of different things that are taken into account there, and um, yeah, it's a kind of a it's kind of a, a fun and rich sort of subject to dive into, and it's actually been really tough to try to convey all of that in 15 minutes, because that is how much time mm-hmm. I have. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's a really interesting topic, and I feel like that it, you could spend a lot more time discussing the difference um, musically and maybe attentionally uh, between the single-player narrative experience um, and the multiplayer experience. I feel like our, our attention spans are engaged in fundamentally different ways as soon as you add another human being.
0: It's really true that, you know, I was thinking about that 15 minute experience. I end up actually not talking so much about the musical stuff because that stuff is pretty straightforward. And honestly, telling a musician, uh, telling another composer how to compose, it's not really the thing that uh, I ever like to do. But I think those technical considerations that are in play motivating Uh, Those decisions that you make as a music composer are really interesting. Uh, Things like uh, what happens when multiple multiplayer states get joined together into a single multiplayer instance. What do you do with the music then? Can Mm. you actually do anything with the music elegantly at that point? And that's something that you don't have to consider at all in the single player experience. Oh, yeah. All I have to care about is the music state that I'm in right now. Can I elegantly go into another music state that's easily predictable? Sure, yeah. It's kind of fun just sort of thinking about all those technical considerations and the game design that motivates all of that. Uh, you know, game design for multiplayer experiences is so, so different compared to that single player. And single player, I'm just usually thinking, okay, they're going to be. They're going to be hanging out with this NPC for this period of time and going through these particular areas of the game and yada, yada, yada. Very predictable, very easy. In these multiplayer experiences that are just totally open, but we still want to have a narrative flow, it's all very fuzzy, very fuzzy logic, very probabilistic. And you're like, okay, I've got to account for this thing and this thing and this thing, and I'm going to... Um, I'm going to divide up my instruments in this particular way, so that it feels like it's a natural change, or that it's uh, a meaningful, if sudden change, going from one set of instruments in one area to another set of instruments in another area. It's uh, they're fun challenges to have, uh, and it's actually really cool being able to do that on a on a single game. I think that's part of the reason why I stuck with this game for so long. For some of you that may know, I have been working on Sky Children of the Light since 2012. Wow. Oh, wow. Actually, I'm just realizing this. It's been 10 years. I think that's oh, longer God, than it's...
1: some of our listeners have been alive. So congratulations. Oh, no. On that.
0: <laughs> no, uh, I don't want to think about it that way. But, but yeah, even though it's been a single game, there's been a lot of really interesting and different challenges that the game has thrown at me over that time. And the game that I'm scoring right now is really different from the game that it was in production back in the mid 2010s and even very different from the game that actually comprised its initial official launch in 2019. So it's you know that, that's definitely something. Um, it's I consider myself pretty lucky to have a gig working in games and music and audio as I do. But even more lucky to be working on one project that has given me so much stuff, so much rich stuff in order to just sink my teeth into when it comes to those challenges and how I'm actually going to approach it from a musical standpoint. In some ways,
1: game music is more comparable to film music um, in that its prominence, I think, in in game narratives. And in other ways, it's more comparable to TV music in the sense that you are – Over a long period of time, approaching a story or a property or something, and it might be iterative, you know, with TV, you might have season after season to develop the vocabulary of the music and uh, let it evolve over time and have a feeling that you're committed to this thing for, hopefully, for a long period of time. So that element seems to translate to game music, at least when a project is more than a a quick one-shot.
0: I think so, too. It definitely feels like that. And when I'm in meetings and talking with some of the people uh, that are working on these different seasons, uh, different episodes and cutscenes, you know, there's definitely a lot of language that feels very familiar to me. Um, yeah, I haven't really worked in that sort of episodic, episodic linear media before. Uh, it actually does feel really familiar to me how to approach the scoring of these various elements, being able to uh, prepare and craft the library that is going to be used in order to make all sorts of options possible, You know, creating this sort of rich, if uncertain, musical tapestry for everything and making it all feel really good. Yeah, it's been really fun. Very cool. We'll look forward to hearing
1: more about it. And uh, I'm certainly going to make sure I catch your talk uh, in retrospect. Retrospect? Is that the right word? Retroactively? Uh, After the fact, post facto, um, when it comes to the (laughs) the GDC vault.
0: Oh, yeah. Sounds good. Thank you. There's actually a bunch of things that happened really recently that uh, we didn't get a chance to talk to in previous episodes. Uh, I really wanted to mention this but uh, you know, both Alex and I, we're both PC people. Apple just talked up their Mac Studio. That thing looks absolutely insane. And I gotta admit, I was really, really tempted to just buy one. Um, you saw the news on that, right? How did you feel when you saw that?
1: Well, first I started uh, the way I normally do with any Mac announcement, it, which is reread about it through half a dozen different blogs. And because I'm, I'm that kind of nerd. And uh, what, what's really cool about it is it seems to address a level of professional user who needs more power than the consumer level Mac desktop or, or laptops, for that matter, but who doesn't necessarily want to spend $15,000 on a Mac Pro. So you've got this thing that's squarely in the middle. It's, it's almost comparable to the iPad Air. You know, it's got a lot of, I think, features from the higher end, but it's clearly above the lower end. And, and in a way, it comes at, at a time when Apple really needed to show more love to the Mac as a platform. Uh, so, and then I think it does very, very well. And, uh, I won't say you know, apologizing for the sins of the past, but for compensating for some, uh, well noticed voids in their uh, product line. Mm-hmm. It's it's. Um, I mean, the, there's been a long period of time where the Mac felt neglected as a platform, and I think composers really felt this. And I think there was a lot of temptation towards what we regard as the dark side, what you regard as home base, which is the PC world. Uh, in that, you know, we had the last <laughs> Mac Pro prior to the, the, I think 2019, 2020 Mac Pro, the, the giant Intel based one. The prior Mac Pro was 2013, the infamous trash can. And uh, I am an owner of that device. Yeah. And, uh, there, there was the iMac Pro along the way, but there wasn't really something that top end professionals could sink their teeth into. So the, the Intel Mac Pro made people happy um at least it, it was the first sign of recommitment to the mac platform i think that was really just a stopgap i think it was just apple saying we we've got to do something because the m chips are not ready and apple silicon is not ready and we're we're kind of seeing what i think the long game was with these super fast uh, chips that are also weirdly uh low power uh, low power consuming chips which is two things that we normally don't think of as coexisting. You know, you usually think of like a, a powerful chip is going to drain a lot of power, which would you care about if it's a laptop? And these are both faster and lower power, which is just amazing. So to actually answer your question, uh, yeah, these seem like really powerful uh prograde machines. And I think that a lot of audio developers, a lot of composers ought to get one of these things if you if you want to be on the Mac side of things. There's two flavors. There's one of them has the M1 Max chip, which I think is the same chip in the most recent MacBook Pro. And then there's this Mm -hmm. thing called the M1 Ultra, which is brand new and even faster and twice as many cores and so on and so forth and obviously much more expensive. And what's cool about that chip is it's actually just two M1 Maxes like abutted together. They, They were designed so that you could kind of daisy chain two of them But in some magic way that it didn't, that it was no loss of efficiency. It wasn't like there was some bus between the two chips, you know, some corpus callosum like thing that slowed everything down. It apparently really is very efficient and was designed with that in mind. So my position is, you know, I've been eyeing my trash can Mac with a certain amount of nostalgia and also yearning for something better. And I'm amazed that it's been a viable machine for as long as it has. Like it's stunning that we're, we're, up, I think like nine years, and the thing still works pretty darn well. But uh yeah, these are these are definitely calling for me. And I think what I'm gonna do personally is just try to eke out a few more months of life out of my existing Mac Pro and see what's coming up at the Worldwide Developers Conference. And I suspect that's where we will see the introduction, or at least the announcement, of the new Mac Pro which will probably be like Deep Thought, you know, one of these machines that can calculate the number of quarks in the universe. Uh, and then I'll say, okay, do I want to spend, you know, who knows, $12,000 or whatever insane price that thing's going to be? Or do I want something that's pretty darn fast for, you know, between two and $5,000? And I think a lot of folks in audio will, ra-
0: will, will grapple with that same choice.
1: Do you want the top end or a solid medium end?
0: It's really an amazing proposition, honestly. I'm looking at this thing, and that Mac studio is not that expensive uh, it, It's certainly expensive, you know, two thousand, four thousand dollars, and then going up as you keep on uh, kitting it out with more storage, which is always expensive if you put extra storage coming straight from the straight from Apple but I was really, really tempted to pull the trigger on something like this. Okay, four thousand bucks, and it's got this power. That just in terms of the benchmarks, and we all know benchmarks are not necessarily the best at translating over to what the real meaningful performance is, especially in music and audio, where there aren't really good benchmarks out there. There, there is Daw Bench. But that M1 Ultra just seems really amazing to me, and the fact that all the benchmarks say that it is as good, if not better, than a top-end Mac Pro. And admittedly, it's a Mac Pro from 2019, which means it is a really awesome processor for 2019. Uh, but but still, being able to have that in such a small package with such a low power consumption and basically promising to do pretty much anything that I would want to do as a music composer. I was, wow, I, I could do this. All the software that I currently use is not Windows only anymore. There was a time when I was a Cakewalk person, and Cakewalk Sonar is a Windows program, and you could get it running on other operating systems, but it's not supported that way. Uh, and No, I'm Reaper these days, and I use other things like Vienna Ensemble. And all of those things work on Mac, and they work on Mac swimmingly. Maybe I should just make that jump. And I was really tempted. In the end, I actually decided not to do it. Uh, AMD did a big price drop on a lot of their processors. So I decided to, hey, I will just upgrade my processor to the best processor that this motherboard can fit, uh, which came down to a price of 550 bucks plus tax for that AMD Risen 5950X. And there's a processor that also uh, specs very nicely against that awesome 2019 28-core Xeon that they were comparing the benchmarks uh, against with that M1 Ultra. That's what I'm currently riding right now. I'm still looking longingly at... Apple and what they are promising, not just now, but in the future with these new M1 chips and how they've got that whole ultra fusion thing going on where you could just slap two together and then you get a literally a 2x boost in power. Uh, what's it going to be in the future? 3x, 4x? Uh, That is honestly one of these things that uh, processor manufacturers and motherboard manufacturers have struggled with. You know, you could put two processors on a board, but are you really going to get 2x power out of it? And uh, Apple seems to have figured something out there. So that's super exciting. But for now, I'm going to try to get, hey, maybe I'll get a few more years out of my computer with this upgraded AMD processor. Because it it flies now, i'm super happy about it I think if you're on a desktop, you can
1: find a sufficiently fast machine for any audio purpose on either platform um, you know there's there's I, I try not to get involved in religious debates, so I think you know if you if you like the aesthetics and feel of Windows, there's no Compelling, you must do this reason to go to Mac and, and, you know, and vice versa. I think it comes down to just aesthetic preferences and the feel of the operating system and maybe occasionally the, um, the necessity of using something that might be single platform. Like, like if you really want logic, obviously you're stuck in the Mac world. Um, there might be more debates once you get into the mobile world when you 're looking at things like battery life and and heat generation and perf- and, and
0: efficiency, but I think that 's less an issue for most composers yeah you know it 's more than just that though i there 's a lot of things that i 've been doing lately in order to make my Windows machine a little more apple like so um right now i 'm actually uh talking to you, to you with windows with my main machine but my main pointing device right now is actually a magic trackpad <laughs> those things are great it's so good um it's really nice it's really smooth basically i found out that there is a project that you can download on github i think it was started like 3 or 4 years ago and it basically gives you a nice clean driver you can plug in the trackpad via usb or or connected wirelessly via Bluetooth. And it basically is a perfectly working Apple trackpad in Windows uh, without actually running on an Apple machine, running boot camp or whatever. It's so nice. And I've actually lately taken to running two different input devices on my right hand, my mouse for certain things, and the trackpad for other things. Mostly in order to relieve some of the discomfort I felt from using a mouse uh, all the time. It's uh, you know I was starting to feel some tension in my arm and my wrist. And I was experimenting with things like vertical mice and whatnot. Uh, but now I'm doing a combo of a mouse and this magic trackpad. And wow, it's so good. Apple makes good stuff, don't they?
1: They do. And if, uh, if we were still doing a video show, I would at this point, take my camera and turn it on my studio desk to show that I have the exact same setup you just described. I've got the Apple Magic mouse, and then right next to it, I've got the Apple Magic trackpad. And uh, the the trackpad 2 in particular, because it's a little flatter, so it's less wrist strain for me. And I actually, like you, uh, find it sometimes handy to jump back and forth between them. Or I'll have the trackpad on the left side and I've kind of trained my left hand when I want to do something like some pinch to zoom stuff, my hand, my left hand will just jump over to the side and do that automatically. So it almost feels invisible, which is really cool.
0: Oh, that's really cool. You know, I I haven't seen this before. Like there aren't a lot of – I don't know if there's anyone out there that's really shouting from the hilltops, hey, you could use a trackpad and a mouse at the same time. It's actually really cool. Um But, hey, it's cool to see that you're doing it as well. I just recently figured this out this year, and I am a convert. I think having both of these options at hand is really cool. There's just some times in a DAW where having that precision zooming from pinching is just really valuable. Then other times where I'll just go to my mouse, which has a couple of extra programmable buttons and that scroll wheel. I can do the things I need to there before going back to the trackpad. It's, man, it's a, it's a great combo. And I decided to go this route after researching some, um, some trackpads that other companies who are not Apple have made for Windows. And the general consensus seems to be it's just not as good. The hardware is just not quite there. So went over to the Apple store, got myself a trackpad, and here we are. It's, it's such a great setup. Apple does sweat the details on hardware. Speaking of Apple, Alex, I know you have plenty of things to say about Apple, right? Hello,
2: sorry I'm late. <laughs> what, what did I? What did I miss? Did I? Did I miss any action? Oh man,
0: so much stuff. Uh, no, we we've just been talking about some some stuff here and there. Uh, but now we've got a party. We do. <laughs>
1: we have quorum. Yeah, sorry, we can we can pass resolutions now because we have quorum.
2: That's right. Um, sorry, yes, I was a, a little bit uh, occupied with the children this evening, but uh, I'm here now, and so uh, yeah, it's very nice to uh, be here once again with you two fine gentlemen. Uh, what are we talking about? Are we talking about Apple?
1: Well, we had just yeah reviewed, a little bit: Yeah, a little bit of the hardware, some of the new hardware, and we were just talking about the virtues of using Apple input devices, perhaps more than one at the same time. So you know when we're done here, you can go back and listen to the first part of the episode and kind of catch up
2: fancy yeah the uh we we I think we've spoken before about um trackballs as well and the the kind of mysterious the serious way that trackballs seem to just pop up in uh studios for some reason people in studios especially um you know big audio studios maybe because a trackball doesn't kind of fall off the mixing desk I suppose the way that uh the way that a mouse on a mouse mat might uh, but neither of you use trackballs do you i haven't seen a trackball
1: in years and i'm really curious how um how often they're used today
2: when you go to youtube and you look at any any kind of you know mixing tutorial or you know the 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 usual pro audio uh you know the pro tools pro tools crowd they're pretty much they're they're fairly ubiquitous like you see them so often people using trackballs and um, I think we talked about it before, but I'm not not. I've never used one, so I just don't really know the 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 benefit or the the. I mean, there must be a practical benefit, I suppose. I guess if, like I said, if you if you're sitting in front of a big analog mixing desk, which will be obviously slightly slanted, then a trackball makes sense because a mouse would just fall off. But uh, yeah, trackballs. It's, there, it's the enigma, isn't it? The trackball.
1: I think you get a kind of stability. And a very small footprint, so for envi- like I I sometimes end up chasing my trackpad around the desk as my hand brushes it aside and you know, I have to pull it back in. So a trackball will typically not have that problem because the you know the mounting device is beefy, right? It's it's weighty, so mm. you're not going to casually knock it aside. But I've always felt that they they you give up some precision when you use a trackball, uh, based on my ancient memories and also memories of playing Crystal Castles.
0: Yeah. I've definitely think about those trackballs a bit, but specifically some of the trackballs that I've seen that I saw back in the day, by which I mean in the 2000s, where it seemed like not only did most of the studios I go to have trackballs, they also had particularly fancy ones where you could basically disable either the x or the y of those wow. with a button on the side. That's cool. And so, okay, yeah, I'm using the trackball but I'm only going on the x-axis oh, and it's very clever. and it's like really precise. It's it's very cool to do that. Um mm. as cool as it was, it always seemed to me like uh, a little bit of a curiosity especially since I didn't have the the seemingly requisite big console that that trackball was inevitably in front of you know that that just wasn't my setup i was an in-the-box guy so did i necessarily need a trackball in order to navigate all these things across you know dozens and dozens of channels from left to right you know whatever um yeah trackballs always seemed cool but um i was just telling mike that i really like my current combo of a mouse and a trackpad and uh, Mike has a similar setup going for him as well. Uh, mm. Have you thought about doing something like that before, Alex? Or have you, or maybe you've done something similar using a laptop with its trackpad along with a mouse?
2: No, actually, um, I've always been one or the other. Like um, the Apple um, trackpads on their laptops are, are just bonkers good. <laughs> and <laughs> I think anybody who's, who's used one will know how how... Just ridiculous they are. The fact that when there's no power running through your laptop, they're actually just a solid surface. And then that's that moment when you realize, actually, the the thing physically doesn't move at all when I'm pressing into it, but it feels like it's clicking down because of the the really clever haptic feedback that they have. They're just nuts. And uh, so, yeah, for a while, I was using a laptop most of the time, and I'd use that, and then you know, nowadays I'm uh, just using a Logitech mouse connected to my to the PC that I work on, so I just use that. So, no, I've never tried mixing the both of them, but uh, yeah, you see some interesting combinations and people. It's an interesting kind of area, isn't it? Because everybody has different ergonomic needs and ergonomic preferences. Um, some people even like tablets for working with the DAW. Helps with wrists and and you know, uh, risk fatigue. Uh, my uh, colleague. Um, Therese, who's our artist at Moon Mode, she obviously uses a tablet for most of her work, but also she has this fancy mouse, a Logitech one that actually is rotated on the side, so mm. the hand is kind of like you're you're holding, uh, your 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 palm is, uh, how to describe it, it's facing upwards, like you're going to go and ho- uh, give somebody a handshake, so that way. If when you're using your uh, pointer finger to operate the mouse button, it's at a more comfortable angle for your entire forearm, as opposed to the, a traditional uh, mouse where you would have your palm facing down flat on the table, moving your finger up and down, which is apparently, you know, the way the tendons work and all that. It's apparently less uh, uh, or, or more more likely to cause fatigue. So, yeah, it's an interesting area of uh, ergonomics for computers, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I actually experimented a little bit with that vertical-oriented mouse, and mm. it seemed like it was comfortable. But I tried using it for a couple of days, and then I put it back in the box. Um, oh, okay. I've actually tried two different ones, and one was an old one, so I put it in back in the box. The other one was a new one, actually the Logitech MX Vertical.
2: Okay. And I, think I, that's I went the word ahead traces.
0: and re- yeah, I went ahead and returned it just because I was struggling so much with really. precision with it. It was ah. definitely comfortable, but I couldn't be precise with it. Mm. And, and I feel like I really need to, especially when I'm dealing with dense projects on screen, a very dense screen just filled with information. Mm. Um, but with that combo of the mouse and the trackpad, I feel like I don't give up any precision anymore, so. Cool. And that's what yeah. I'm doing right now, it's, it's pretty great. I've got an Apple trackpad connected directly to my Windows machine. Ah, it's amazing all the cool projects that people do in order to make hardware work a little bit more beyond its initial scope.
1: Mm. Nice. A, a quasi related topic in input modality for, for music and audio is the question of using notation software, something like Sibelius or Dorco, my beloved. And um over the years, I've come to a kind of input paradigm, and I find that I cannot break away from it like I, I I'm absolutely tied to it, and it's really weird and I'm curious if anyone else uses it or if it's just some freakish thing that I developed on my own and that is I start with a note on the staff, I hit whatever key that I have bound to the repeat function, so now I'm copying that note, and then I move the next note up or down with arrow keys, and then I'll hit repeat on that note and then move the next one up or down by arrow keys. And then I'll have other hotkeys to transform the rhythmic value of that note. So if it happens to be a quarter, I can hit four, and it's an eighth note. Um, Is this insane? Have either of you ever done anything like that
0: when working with with notation? You know, I don't think it's that insane. I actually do something kind of similar to that, but I don't do it um – I don't do it in notation, I actually do it in DAW. But what I do is I'll just hold a note down for the length of a particular segment. You know, you know, if I can't play it in, I'll just hold it down and suddenly I have something that is, you know, four measures long, let's say, a single note. And what I'll do is I'll actually go ahead and split that note. I'll just click on the the bar lines or beat lines and click there S in order to split this note. And then from all those individual split uh, segments of note, then I'll actually select and go up and down on the keyboard in order to move it into the right position. So I feel that's actually kind of similar to what you're talking about. I'm just doing it in Reaper, and you're doing it in um, Sibelius or Dorico or whatever. That's that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, I can, I can visualize that. And I think on occasion I might have done something like that, just not necessarily intentionally. Huh. Hmm.
2: Why, why, would you, why would you do that instead of just using, like, step input mode?
1: Well, one argument is um, ASCII keyboards are very efficient ergonomically, uh, whereas MIDI keyboards might be less so, particularly hmm. if you don't know what note you want and you just want to hear it out. Um, Oh, I see. This is nothing I I advocate, but I think I I do subconsciously. I'm like, I know I need another note here, but I'm deciding what note it is, so I'm moving it up or down with the arrow keys on my keyboard until I hear, ah, that's the one I wanted. But I couldn't be like, the next note is an F sharp. I'm going to hit the F sharp on the MIDI keyboard. So it it allows you to decide rhythm now and then figure out um, pitch.
0: I I think that's the exact same thing for me. You know, as I move the note up and down on the Reaper piano roll, it just sounds out the note. And I realize, yes, that's exactly the one. Then move on to the next one. So, yeah, I think it's exact same motivations for both of
2: us. Well, gentlemen, I have a fantastic solution for you. It's called the tracker. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man! I think you could, you could you saw that one coming a mile away. I'm sure I but, um, could not escape. Oh. <laughs> no, it's it's it is uh, very interesting to me because obviously I I'm quite used to Cubase now for doing music in a, this kind of bizarre, weird, horizontal fashion that the rest of the world uses. Um, but uh, whenever it comes to using the piano roll. It's just like oh man this is awful like click 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 it's just I feel so far away from my music you know just having to click 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 this this into uh, you know just especially daws that require a double click by default to insert in order to insert a note it's just like click 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 ah oh, this is just horrible whereas obviously with a tracker you are basically typing in the music with the keyboard. And it's just extremely quick, you know, especially um, trackers like Renoise, where you just need to use like Control Control Two, Control Four, Control Eight, or whatever, to, in order to adjust the the step that the uh, entry line will go down after you've entered each note. Mm. And then you're basically just typing it in using the QWERTY keyboard. Um, press Escape to turn off the the step input mode. Figure something out. Like if you if you're ever at the point of can't quite work out what note you want to put in next, you just press escape, turn off the step input mode, and then, you know, just noodle away on your keyboard right in front, like the the piano keyboard in front of you. Okay, that's the note I want. Press escape again, and then just continue typing. So it's so fast. I've been searching for a piano roll equivalent in any DAW that is as fast, for me at least, uh, as inputting notes as a tracker listing is, Uh, and, haven't really found it. Like a lot, of, um, a lot of people speak high praise of the FL Studio um, piano roll input paradigm. And so I got FL Studio to try it out. And yeah, I can see what people are getting at. It is very, very quick. Basically, the main difference is that um, and there's a lot of neat little quality of life uh, features that FL Studio has in its piano roll that makes it very quick to use. But the most basic thing which is often hard to get used to when you come from other DAWs, is that one click left mouse button will insert a note and then the right mouse button will delete notes. Mm. And you can you can hold down the right mouse button and just sort of, like an eraser in Photoshop, you just sort of unpaint notes. Or um, uh, I can't remember spe- the specifics of it, but uh, yeah, the FL Studio Piano Roll, once you get used to it, is also very quick compared to, at least compared to Cubase, and I did try to set up Reaper's Piano Roll to operate similarly to FL Studio. And of course, it's very easy using all of Reaper's customizations. But uh, still, no, it's... Yeah, so it is it is interesting to hear the way that you both are used to operating on, on Piano Rolls and on um, in notation software, because I, I would have assumed that... Uh, well, I would not have guessed that that's the way that two experienced users such as yourselves would have used Piano Rolls. I would have thought that it would have been more basically like the developers are expecting you to do it. You know, double-click, drag out the length, double-click, adjust the velocity, double-click, drag out the length, like that.
1: That's kind of horrible from an ergonomic standpoint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's a question. Does does any DA, maybe Reaper has offered this since 1985, but uh, does any DA <laughs> offer a vertically scrolling piano roll? Where, and I don't mean like... I mean, so if you've got, like, a long note, it's a long line from top to bottom rather than left to right. Like, if you rotated the traditional piano roll 90 degrees.
2: Yes. Uh, I have to think of it. I think there is one. Um, What was it called? Uh, Is it? No, it's not Sunvox. Sunvox is basically a tracker. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. There, I think that there was one. I think I've seen one like that, and it looks horrible.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's basically it like is. Guitar Hero, right? It's it's the, the paradigm of yeah. the notes stretching towards you. It's so weird that we've become accommodate we have become accustomed to the idea of a piano on its side from top to bottom. Yeah. When that's the opposite of how we ever experienced pianos in real life, but
2: that's thanks uh, thanks thanks for nothing, Cubase, because <laughs> that was Cubase that did that first, wasn't it?
1: Oh, interesting. I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, I think because Steinberg Cubase was the very first DAW to have this modern paradigm of a a horizontally scrolling list of notes, uh, like sort of bars representing notes, if I'm not wrong. Is that right, Vince? I think so. But uh, yeah, I'd have to
0: check, honestly. I don't have that off the top of my head.
2: Do you remember in in, um, eMagic Notator on the Atari ST, uh... How do you edit notes? Like, what does it look? What does the interface look like if you want to actually edit a recording of notes?
1: I jumped on that family of DAWs on um, on the Mac when it was called Logic. Uh, So I never. I mean, I I was aware of the Atari ST back in the day, as since all Amiga loyalists regarded it as the hellspawn of the enemy. Uh, (laughs) But I don't think I ever ever. Use music software
2: on the st okay yeah i had I uh know. my best friend had an st and he had um cubase and uh but on the school computer that uh the high school that i went to they had uh notator Emagic magic notator and we, i can remember with my friend always you know laughing at Notator because it looks so obtuse it looks so it's just like you know there's not much visual about it, at least the original Notator, except for the, obviously the notation aspect of it. The that's obviously extremely visual, but the unlike Cubase, which was so much more intuitive with these bars representing note lengths and, um, uh, you know, uh, vertical placement representing pitch, it just made so much more sense. I, I'm just
0: googling around and trying to find stuff. There's a bunch of broken links to stuff. Um... A lot of people, a lot of people on forums saying, "Why would you do this at all?" and talking about a vertical piano roll. But it doesn't seem like a dumb idea, honestly. Um, especially considering so much visualization out there is with the piano oriented the way that we expect it. <laughs> you mm. look at the piano; the bass is on the left, the treble is on the right. Bam and there are even people that actually learn how to play piano in that way because there are so many youtube visualizations that show the piano in that form
2: all oh, right it's, it's
0: so funny that
2: yeah i think that the on the renoise forums at least there's been there's a sort of famously ongoing debate from users at least who want to have a piano roll functionality in renoise and uh, hmm. thankfully the developer of renoise Um, a guy who goes by the handle of Tactic. Thankfully, Tactic has been very, very adamant that, like, if you want a piano roll, if you want that kind of graphical representation of your notes, you're using the wrong program. (laughs) There 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 are so many more other options out there for you that can give you a better piano roll experience and a better visual representation of your notes than a tracker will. So just use them because... Yeah, this a tracker is not for everybody. It doesn't have to have visual representation that is, you know, catering for everybody. It's a specific way of working uh for specific people essentially. So, uh yeah, there's been a lot of um users submitting concepts, like concept art of what a vertical scrolling piano roll could look like in Renoise, but it, it just seems a little bit I don't know, too much like a square peg in a round hole if you ask me. Mm.
1: And there is this unofficial paradigm that the more flexible your DAW is, the uglier it becomes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Cause the more right. I know that very well.
1: I mean, the more, the more ways there are to approach basic tasks, the more abstract and mechanistic the interface has to be because you can't really sit down and invest design brain cycles because the design could constantly have to change. Like what's that one? Right. What's that one EQ, which is like, Absurdly customizable from an interface standpoint, and you can just make it look like any EQ in the history of of mankind—a uh, digital, oh, not right. not like a hardware one. I played with it. Do you know what I'm talking about?
2: Yes. Hmm. One of what you recommended it to me
1: too, because I was looking for a particular kind of interface concept. And what I found was, I I guess I won't impugn its you know interface by naming it, but um, because it was so flexible, no particular configuration looked good visually.
2: Uh, everything was functional but was it uh, DMG Audio Audios Equilibrium mm. that might oh, be it. I think that I think that might be it yes yeah although equilibrium's, equilibrium's not not that ugly to be fair and but the 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 customizations are you can have it like a sort of knob mode or spectrum analyzer mode or uh or both or numbers mode or yeah and uh, uh, maybe it's not that one though cuz that's that's not that you know ugly it's not hideous it's not
1: (laughs) like an eyesore but it doesn't look as nice as you know like a lot of the plugins that we're used to that were designed you know they they weren't they didn't just have a a epiphenomenal interface that was a side effect of the decisions and preferences that the user made they were a a created designed interface and therefore i mean like if you think of um um, fab filter you know those things are gorgeous and as Flexible as they are, and as many different configurations they have, they are following a, a kind of basic design. Or, or, there's you know two different views, and you can expand the view to show the second. But yeah, I am looking at the DMJ audio thing. I mean, we would have considered that beautiful, you know, fifteen years ago. Um, <laughs> to my eye, it's a little clunky. Not mm. everyone cares. Like that, that may be fine, you know. Um, but how mm. did I get this subject? Oh yeah, just so the more flexible something is, the more ways you can go, the more you have to give up. Specific decisions about the interface.
2: Yeah. Although um, Logic and Cubase, I would have to say, specifically those two, as two of the, you know, elder statesmen of the DAW scene, as in two of the very, very first digital audio workstations ever. So you can't get much more elder statesmen than those two, really. Um, uh, I have to say, like the modern incarnation of both of those, Logic and Cubase, I. I think that they've I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I think that the they've done an excellent job in making both of these two ultra legacy DAWs with all of their heavyweight functionality. I, I think both of them look actually quite attractive and they're quite pleasing to work with. I mean Logic obviously has the responsibility to uphold the whole Apple design aesthetic and the Apple uh, sort of branding aesthetic. So and they've I've I guess um uh Logic also has the you know the the um the knowledge base and, and the the UX and the UI uh power of the Apple design department behind it um but Steinberg Cubase as well you know the modern versions of Cubase uh the recent uh, Cubase 12 that came out I mean it hasn't the, the appearance of it hasn't changed that much recently but I find them quite attractive actually I think that they're quite nice to look at over long sessions and um, everything is laid out neatly and it's quite easy to find things. You compare that, say, for example, obviously Reaper is the elephant in the room here. But uh, <laughs> another, another example is um, uh, Studio One. Studio 1. Studio 1, I've never i have not actually tried Studio 1, but it uh it it looks intense. It, it looks uh if you look at screenshots of uh, people who've customized their interface or set their interface up to to work how they wish. Obviously, you can pare it down to be quite minimal, but uh, some of the more or some of the less minimal layouts that people set up with Studio 1, yeah, it looks it looks pretty pretty thick, I'd have to say.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at the interface now and um
2: does look quite
1: uh, uh, quite detail intensive <laughs> to come up yeah. with a euphemism.
2: Yeah, but of course, uh, DAWs. I mean, there's you know everybody has personal preferences, and uh, you know some people think uh, Studio One looks wonderful and elegant and refined, and other people think that you know Cubase looks ridiculous. And uh, another one that's rather polarizing is Bitwig. Mm. It seems that you're either oh, one yeah. side of the fence or the other when it comes to the way that Bitwig looks. I think it looks quite good. What What do you both think?
0: I personally think Bitwig looks fantastic, but it's also kind of intimidating. Mm. Um, just with because it, it's it's flexible. You know, Bitwig is a very flexible sort of not just a DAW but also a performance space. And right. I would love to actually spend some time actually playing around with it because it does seem very, very powerful in that way that I'm sure other people have um, had uh, similar feelings when they're really rocking out with, say, Ableton Live or Live in combination with Max. and
2: Yeah, and, that's know, the big one. It's
0: incredibly powerful.
2: Yeah, that's live and Max is really the main competitor for Bitwig at this point because Bitwig has uh, all of these. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty amazing because it has all of yeah. this sort of g- generative, uh, generative music and um, uh, sort of algorithmic procedural generation of musical patterns. All of that in there as well as live performance, as well as audio editing, as well yeah. as MPE, as well as uh, you know just standard MIDI sequencing and audio sequencing. And yeah, it looks. Uh, looks pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. And Live is honestly, Live is kind of fun to get into. You go onto the Max side and it's actually really scary. You're just presented with literally a black, a blank canvas. And uh I mean that that thing's Turing complete. It's just a straight up programming language <laughs> at a certain point. Mm. So that is actually really scary when you're just confronted with a whole lot of nothing, and you're not sure what to get into, which is mm. a lot different than most DAWs. You know, you go into Live first, you go into Bitwig first, and there's some semblance of what you're going to be thinking about as you're creating a track. Oh, I do want to think about tracks or instruments or plugins or whatnot, mm. and then you go on to Max, and it's like, uh, let me think about this a little bit more deeply because it's not giving me anything. <laughs>
2: Speaking of um, attractive user interfaces, um, have either of you uh, looked into any of the recent offerings from SSL? I actually recently picked up the vocal strip. I oh, haven't yeah. played
0: around with it much because, um, well, it, it was just put on sale yesterday, down from 200 bucks to 20 bucks, And I figured, oh, I could use this, mostly because I do have – a couple of things that I do for quick vocal processing. So, you know, one of the things that I actually do a lot of is dealing with editing and processing spoken voice. So that's uh, our podcast, right? (laughs) Well, well, I mean, there, yeah, there is the podcast, but also things like, um, you know, I'm still working with a couple of fighting game developers and okay, you get a spreadsheet of their script You've got references for animation timings for moves, and they just tell me, go at it. So I've got to take their lines and fit them into the right space in order to, you know, fit the animation or, like, you know, make sure things are balanced out so that call-outs actually sound like big callouts and whispers sound like whispers, but they're actually still audible in whatever the dynamic range they want, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm actually always interested in things that can make my vocal processing workflow quicker and more slim i recently got onto the ssl train i really like pretty much every plugin that i've used from them so when i saw that this one was on sale i figured okay i'll just go and grab it um mm. it seems pretty good uh i need to really put it through the ringer and see how it sounds when i need to push it really far uh, you know, mm. Just how effective is that DS Just how good is that Compander and the look ahead and, and all that? So I haven't pushed it really far, but so far it seems like it's a really good plugin. It, it hasn't done anything to sully the reputation of SSL software in my head and my experience with their channel strip and and bus compressor and all that.
2: Yeah, actually, the, I saw that that was on sale for $19. Uh, I think it's going to be on sale for... Uh... I think the next week, or was it, was it much shorter than that? But I guess it depends when our episode is going out. It may not be on sale by the time that our listeners hear this. Um, but uh, um, It
0: looks like a St. Patrick's Day sale, so it might oh, okay. be
2: pretty quick. Okay. Yeah, I was, I was looking at that, uh, pondering whether or not to pick it up, because I don't really work with voice very often, hardly at all, actually. And so when I have the chance to do so, obviously I don't have the experience working... With all the different you know options and and plugins and the excessive amount of choices that I have when it comes to you know compressing something or equalizing something or dsing something, and so having a sort of a a single place that I could go to right okay here's a focal strip here's all that I need uh seems like a good workflow choice if I don't have that you know experience with dealing with voice with any of the other options that I have, so yeah, I might uh, have a look at it as well, but how about you Mike, have you uh do you have any SSL plugins that you use at all?
1: Yeah, I was infected by Vince's enthusiasm uh, as well as some of the sales that were happening recently. Uh, so I, I got a few uh, for a song, and then one or two I, I bought a bundle that was technically not incredibly price slash, but still represented a, a decent savings. The one I found really, really um, valuable as an addition to my arsenal is the bus compressor. Mm. And I was just comparing that to other compressors i've used for you know mix bus and there was just something about it that i have to fall back on hand wavy subjective terms but it just had this beautiful gluing effect that i achieved achieved (laughs) like i was doing anything but turning knobs that i was able to get (laughs) you know effortlessly i just turned this little thing and all of a sudden it felt, again, hand-wavy, subjective, artsy-fartsy, but it felt like the mix was being very elegantly compressed in this smaller tunnel than it had been. And I was comparing it to some of my older mixes done with, you know, perfectly respectable compressors, and it just sounded a little better and a little silky smooth. Um, I love it, and it may become my new go-to for mix bus compression. Uh it's also gorgeous and um mm. to me the ssl plugins are the perfect combination of a little bit of skeuomorphism because you've got the you know pretend dials and stuff with a basically modern look that is extremely clear and clean uh, so you mm. can you can see where functionality is and if you look at their channel strip which is the other thing i got um the placement of the eq knobs first of all it's it's primarily um vertical. So it kind of looks like a channel strip, but just the placement of the EQ knobs is so clear. So you can just visually know what's going on with your EQ just by glancing at it, which is not true with a lot of channel strips. Mm. Uh, verdict's still out on whether or not I'm going to use the channel strip. Um, I, I seem to like
0: the EQ on it a lot, but I'm still experimenting, but the bus compressor is amazing. Cool. I want to echo that too. You, know, you basically said it. I guess I've had the luxury of being able to compare it to a couple of, you know, analog compressor and limiter over here. It's it's really really good. It so yeah, that bus compressor really does work a treat.
2: So actually, I um I picked up um, SSL XEQ2, and um, this was one that I was not expecting to be so impressed at. To be honest, uh, I picked it up. If you see a picture, okay, it's fair enough. It's a graphic. It's a um, you know standard modern era spectrum analyzer EQ basically. So it's directly competing with the likes of you know the ubiquitous Pro Q from Fab Filter, as well as many others uh, in that space. And um, uh, at one of their previous sales, I demoed a bunch of stuff and uh, thought, okay, I'm going to grab one of these. And I remember XEQ2 was was going on pretty pretty cheap. And um, uh, so I I demoed it. And it's pretty, firstly, as you said, Mike, the, the user interface, a lot of the choices with the user interfaces are just very, very smart. And at this point, when it comes to these kinds of digital EQs, I mean, let's face it, at this point, it's all about workflow, isn't it? Because, you know, or a digital EQ like this, you know, your your DAW's default native EQ is going to be perfectly adequate when it comes to sound. And so it's all about um, workflow and about usability and quick, quick results, basically. And there are a few very, very smart choices that they made with the design of XEQ2, uh, which just are really impressive. One of the main things, something that bothers me a lot about FabFilter uh, Pro-Q3 is that you have your spectrum analyzer in front in front of you you create an eq node and then down the bottom right on top of the spectrum analyzer comes this big fat modal floating sort of panel of of knobs basically covering up the spectrum analyzer exactly where you want to be seeing it which is underneath <laughs> the node of where you've just placed huh. i i don't really i mean i I use Pro-Q3 a lot too, but I, I don't really see this, the UX sense in that just because like this is specifically where I'm going to be wanting to look at. And now I have this big, fat floating panel of button uh, knobs right underneath where I need to see. So it, it doesn't make sense to me. Now, in the case of XEQ2, when you create a node, uh, around the node appear these tiny little dots And the top one I think is gain and the one off to the bottom left is uh, Q and the the one the bottom right is frequency or it might be. No, actually I think the top one is frequency, bottom left is gain and the bottom right is Q or whatever. There's these little dots. And if you grab those dots with the mouse, it gives you very, very fine axis locked control over specifically that function. So if you only want to sweep frequency without adjusting anything else then you just grab the little dots for the frequency and just move the mouse and then it will kind of gently sweep it left and right or the uh, same with gain and same with q and obviously Fab Filters' panel of floating knobs gives you individual control over each one of these things as well however just the kind of small um Aspects of time saving in being able to double click and then just immediately move your mouse just a little bit up and grab and then start scrolling that way rather than having to go all the way down the bottom of your interface, <laughs> all 100 pixels or whatever it is, <laughs> and grab grab a knob uh, that's just very inconveniently sitting right on top of the spectrum analyzer where you actually want to be looking. It doesn't really it makes it the XEQ2, is it's just far nicer to use. On top of that, and the, again, like Mike said, this is the the bit where it's you know you get very hand wavy and it, it becomes a little bit subject. Well, it becomes extremely subjective. But the XEQ two just sounds great, and I have no explanation why. Like I did some direct comparisons, trying to I, you know just do a bang in a shelf and a cut, and then use Pro Q to try and get exactly the same curve. You can do it with some work, but for some reason, if I if I try to use them the same way as fast as I'm using either of them, so you know, pull up XEQ2, quick shelf, yeah, you know, quick high pass, quick mid cut, done, sounds great. Try and do that in any other um, EQ plugin that I've got, and it, it's much slower to get a sound that sounds really nice. Um, I checked out the Plugin Doctor. To see actually what uh, XEQ2 is actually doing, and you know, other than um, uh, high high bell shaped high bell shaped uh, EQ curves that don't cramp as you approach Nyquist, other than that, there doesn't seem to be anything else terribly magical going on. Um, it has a, a parallel mode, which is really nice for parallel EQ. But um, that's where rather than one band feeding into the next band every band basically is is operating in parallel to each other uh, and it has a bunch of different curve shapes that you can set so that again it's just for speed for example if you like a very very wide boost but a very very narrow cut by default So if you find yourself, whenever you're making cuts, you're always making very surgical cuts. And whenever you're making boosts, you find yourself always making big, gentle, musical wide boosts. There's a curve for that. So you just set that, save it as your default. And then, yeah, as soon as you pull up XEQ, it's just ready to go. And you can cut surgically or boost gently. Or the opposite. If you like to boost very narrow bands and you like to cut uh, with big, wide musical um, troughs, then you can set that up as well. So yeah, I've actually really been impressed by XEQ2 and uh, other than the lack of ProQ's qs um, match EQ function and the dynamic EQ that Pro-Q can do, um, I'm not really missing anything to be honest and I'm really enjoying uh, XEQ2. To
1: Alex's point, uh, you know, Alex, you, you took a track I gave you and you did a little bit of EQ massaging that I thought was really nice and you did it in the XEQ2, which I don't have. So I, I took your parameters and, uh, I, um, I, I looked at the, I think, what did I do? I think I looked at the demo mode or the trial version of the XEQ, plugged in your parameters, saw what was going on just visually, graphically, and then tried to recreate that in the Ozone EQ plugin. And it was a lot of work. I think I had to use two <laughs> different plugins to, to, like, I had to do the additive effects of two EQ plugins just to approximate what you had done. And, wow. uh, I was able to do it because you thought my result sounded pretty close to yours, but it was a lot of work. So it just may be, you know, if you take two EQs and you give them the exact same parameters, you know, the same Q, the same set uh, target frequency, the same, um, you know, everything else, you don't necessarily get the same result. Uh, I think there's some non standardization in some of those parameters and there may be some decisions that the XEQ makes. Like if you, if you put in a shelf in the XEQ, I'm going to put this in very non-scientific terms so engineers out there please forgive me the point where the shelf kind of hits the ground uh there's a little bit of a dip if it's a if it's a boosting <clears> shelf there's like a little bit of a dip before it goes back to neutrality and I assume this is part of the the famed ssl sound and just to create that you know I, I had to do a lot of fiddling in in ozone just to get that so it may well be that just the, the summation of the built-in decisions gives you a nicer
2: sound sooner. I think that's what it is because um, that's what I've just found that it's you know not thinking at all about what's going on going on under the hood or any kind of you know fancy uh, I don't know like emulation technology of the SSL desks or anything like that. The simple reality for me has been that you know, slap on the XEQ2 and there we go. It's do some clicking around. Oh, that sounds perfect. That sounds exactly like what I want it to sound like. And I seem to arrive at that point far faster with XEQ2 than uh, any of the other options that I regularly use like Pro-Q3 and uh, BX Digital. So yeah, uh, very happy with that purchase. So I, I probably will get the uh, vocal strip. Uh, those are the, XEQ2 currently is the only SSL plugin that I have, but uh, so far so good
0: kind of uh, tangential to this but um you know something that i always see brought up is with ssl i have to add the products to my ilock account and it does surprise me a little bit these days that there are people out there that have a hard line that they do not cross if a product uses iLock as its means of DRM, they will not consider that product whatsoever. And I was kind of wondering if I just happen to be surrounded by quite a few of those specific people, or (coughs) if uh, maybe you have also come across that in your travails on the internet or elsewhere.
1: iLock makes me bristle a little bit. Um, I think they're... (laughs) Their e-license manager software is almost a crime against humanity, just in terms of the experience of using it. But mm-hmm. these days it allows you to either store the license on the dongle. I cannot believe I were talking about dongles in this decade. Uh, or do a sort of virtualization of the license on your computer, the, the cost of which is that you can't easily transport it to another machine. And I find if you go with the computer option, it's min- minimally obnoxious. So I'm not, I'm not well, thrilled, but I, I put up with it.
2: Well, actually, Mike, I have a horror story to tell you about that. Um, so actually, Vince, I was one of those guys before. One of those uh, people Uh-oh. who said, OK, what's this? I lock? OK, forget it. Not, not buying this one. <laughs> not going to go anywhere near I lock. Thank you very much. Um, then I believe it was so I started to get into stuff by UVI, and UVI uses um, the iLock E licensor. Yep. and then uh, another manufacturer um, PSP, which I've used for a long time for for various um, uh, different effects. PSP decided to do all their things on on iLock, so I was kind of forced into it just because of manufacturers that I absolutely had to uh, had the, have the products for. And uh, yeah, like Mike, I also had, I don't actually own a dongle. I have the, all of the things that I use are on the iLox e licenser. So <laughs> let me tell you a little story. So oh, I had man. everything on, on the e licenser on a MacBook Pro uh, when the MacBook Pro's motherboard fried itself. <gasps> and yeah, you, I, you know where that's going because the way that the e licenser works is it's somewhere on the, I don't know, I have no idea, actually, the technical details of how it works, but somehow it ties itself to the hardware signature of your computer, which means you activate something on a computer, you use it on that computer, and then let's say you're going to uh, you know, upgrade to a different machine. You need to de- go through and deactivate things so that you can get that license back to activate again somewhere else, right? Uh, well, when your motherboard fries itself... There's actually no way left to deactivate the things that were registered onto that computer. The only way to do it is to go and contact every individual developer of every product that you owned and say, "Hey, you know, my computer fried itself. Can you please um, uh, like, revoke one of my licenses?" Right. So yeah, so that because you will contact ILOCK. ILOCK shrugs their shoulders and say, "Sorry, that's out of our control. You have to contact the developers." So if you own, you know, a bunch of products from a bunch of different companies and they're all stored on your e-licenser and something happens to your computer and you can't deactivate them, most companies will give you, you know, like three activations or something like that. But obviously, uh, you know, you don't want to have one of those activations permanently tied to a computer that you could you will never be using before because it's fried itself. So, Yeah. There was like a, a few days where basically I was just there emailing uh, all these developers to say, hey, can you please res- restore a license for me? Because my computer broke down. So nice one, iLock. Great. <laughs> Talk about user experience.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm glad that companies are um, moving away from the iLock. And even if it means their own proprietary system, and even if it means that your computer has to have an internet connection at least once a month or, you know, whatever system they use, I think it's it's preferable to these kind of uh, irrevocable hardware-bonded software licenses.
0: Well, well, you know, it's funny you say that because um, one of these companies, which uh, the products of whom I really rely on quite a bit, Vienna, they just announced, hey, we're moving to iLock. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> Get ready. And they just have this big announcement. They actually have like a concurrent sale going on. Hey, Lock, Yeah. <laughs> it, it's so weird. <laughs> it, it is a little funny that. Um, I mean, I do gotta admit, I haven't had a huge issue with iLock, although I've had some similar things going on. Um, like I there's actually some UVI stuff and some older Sonivox stuff. That mm. is tied to some computers that are long since dead. Uh, but thankfully, I have another activation that I could rely on um, or that I am currently relying on now. And I actually did put it on a hardware dongle now. But um, yeah, it is it is kind of funny. Uh, Vienna, uh, they long used the SynchroSoft e-licenser, uh, mm. which was similar to what Steinberg used for years. And Steinberg – uh, earlier, they actually announced, well, we're going away from the SynchroSoft e-licensor. We've got our own thing. So you just log in on the internet.
2: Boom. No problem. I think Steinberg mm. ditched uh, iLock, right? Recently. Yeah, that's right. So it's funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's, not, not, it's not iLock. It was their own uh, proprietary dongle. Got it. Yeah, that was SynchroSoft. Yeah. Got, oh, okay. got it. Right. Oh, I have one of those. So, that's
0: right. So it's just kind of funny that you know Vienna, Yeah, they also are ditching SynchroSoft, but they're not doing their own thing. Instead, they're going to iLock. And so, all right, my iLock dongle is filling up. It's got some SSL stuff there. I'm anticipating Vienna stuff, eventually populating my iLock account. And then uh, when stuff happens in the future, I think hopefully it will work. I'm actually a little scared about that because they yeah. already talked about how certain software, if you run it in plugin mode rather than standalone mode. Here, I'm talking about Vienna Mirror, which is what they use for spatialization. If you run it in plugin mode, they don't have a forecast for when that will actually go to iLock. Instead, you're going to be using the old Synchrosoft Elicenser. And like, yeah. okay, all right, <laughs> sure.
2: So I, it's I mean. I,
0: I mean, it is one of those programs, though, where it I rely on that day in, day out, and there is no easy replacement for it. So mm. I'm going to I'm going to follow them on this journey wherever it takes them.
2: <laughs> well, I hope that works out because, uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds messy. Sounds a little bit uh, a little bit backward, to be honest, in, in terms of just the the zeitgeist at the moment of licensing technology.
0: Yeah. Well, that is okay. Uh, hey, you know what? We're already getting in uh, well past an hour now. So how about we do some conspicuous consumption?
2: Alex, have you been playing anything cool lately? Seen anything cool? Uh, well, as usual, I've been listening to um, different kinds of music and uh, following on last week from my uh, recommendation of Skritti Palitti, this this uh, <laughs> amazing, uh, amazing... Um, hidden gem in uh in mid 80s pop music in terms of programming uh i've been recently listening to a 1985 album from go west called go west i remember that Uh, Mm. similarly a similar kind of thing to scritty politty again as well it's uh, basically just yeah it's it's basically an advertisement for the dx7 but Huh. Just just really, really, really good music Like the, the programming, the vocals, the rhythms the, the mixing is just amazing, incredible So yeah, Go West, self-titled album, 1985, fantastic What was
1: that? They had a hit off of that album, right? What was that?
2: Yeah, they had. it's called We Close Our Eyes I feel like uh, They also one. had Don't Look Down And another one called Call Me I think those were the three most famous songs from that album one of those I
1: must be familiar with because I remember the band's name from the, the MTV era.
2: Yeah. So how about you, Mike? What have you been into? Well, I was in New York City for a
1: week, so I took advantage of the proximity of Broadway and saw Town. And uh, this is a Ooh. musical treatment of from Greek mythology, the, uh, the Persephone myth, as well as and primarily the Orpheus Eurydice myth and the the musical language is heavily inspired by new orleans jazz and blues mm. um it's it's quite extraordinary as a musical experience and although i think it's you have to really see the show to get the full emotional impact there's some mileage to be gotten out of the the cast album and it's such an interesting and novel approach to mythological subject matter that um it's it's worth checking out, and on stage, it's quite an extraordinary experience.
2: What about you, Vince?
0: Yeah, I've actually been uh, playing some modern games again. So I tried a little bit of Elden Ring. I decided it is maybe not for me. I can understand why people are into it, but uh, it is a very very difficult game. I've taken far more to Gran Turismo Seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a game after my own heart. I love it. I love cars, and this game is just a love letter to cars. <laughs> and, um, you know, it it's honestly one of those things that gets back to some of the old stuff or the basic stuff of interactive sound design because, you know, doing a car well is in many ways really well understood because Mm. so much of the tools that are out there for audio design are built to enable that to happen Uh, all right you want to do all this multi-layer stuff and matching and parameters and whatnot like the thing that you do as a as a sound design student is you try to make a car and then you see something like gran turismo 7 where everything is done to the nth degree It's Mm. not just the sound coming from the speakers. It's also the sound coming from the surrounds. It's the sound coming from the controller along with the subtle vibration that is provided by that PlayStation 5 controller in order to make you feel like you are in that car. I actually got myself into a Mazda Demio, and I thought, Mm. wow. Yeah, this is exactly what it sounds like. Wow, that (laughs) is actually pretty damn amazing. So – um, must be nice. fun
1: must be fun to do the research and sound design for that game
0: oh yeah all right well it's been a fantastic episode this was actually episode 221 of the game audio hour you can check us out online at various places our home on the web is gameaudiohour.com and you can from there Check us out at the various places that we are at on different podcast platforms. You probably have your favorite one now by this point. You can also follow us on Twitter, and that's where you'll find some cool links and tweets to other stuff that's cool and positive going on in the world of game audio, as well as updates and when our show next drops. And until that next episode comes, bye.